So if you're not there, go ahead and open Genesis 47. Back in Genesis 45, we saw Joseph. He was unable to restrain himself. He couldn't hold back uh, anymore. His emotions, and, and he reveals himself to his brothers. And, and back then in that chapter, we just see this beautiful, um, we saw just this beautiful reconciliation take place. And then in Genesis 46, we see Joseph. He was reunited with his father. He was reunited with Jacob after 22 years. And just imagine, if you can, just imagine what that meeting must have been like. After 22 years, Joseph longing to see his father again. Jacob thinking Joseph has been dead all these many years. The emotions must have just been off the chart when they met. And we pick up the story. We're going to pick up the story in Genesis 46. I know I said turn to uh, Genesis 47, but just a few verses before. Genesis 46, verse 29 says, So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Again, it's been 22 years. He falls on his father's neck. He's kissing his dad. He's weeping over his dad. It's just this beautiful scene as Joseph is just embracing his dad, probably holding him so tight. Maybe, maybe Jacob couldn't breathe, you know what I mean? But just not wanting to let him go. And Jacob, he's getting older. And, you know, uh, just seeing his dad again, you know, Joseph is probably feeling like it's a dream come true. It's probably something that maybe he never thought would ever happen in his lifetime. And we saw Joseph being concerned about this, that it, that it wasn't going to happen. While he was testing his brothers, you know, and, and testing where their heart was, right? He asked multiple times with concern, right? What, again, probably concerned, wondering if he would ever see his dad or not. He asked them multiple times, hey, is your father still alive? Is your father still alive? He was concerned because of his father's age that he may be not going to see him again. Right? He was concerned that he would die before he has a chance to see him. Right? And what a blessing it must have been for Joseph to see his dad, to embrace his dad, to love on his dad. And I'm sure it was the same uh, way. It was just as true for Jacob as it was for Joseph. What a blessing it must have been to see his beloved son again. You know, I think it's very possible unless you've been in a circumstance like that. Maybe it's difficult to imagine how emotional that time must have been. You know, it, it was an unthinkable blessing probably for the both of them. You know, I remember when we lived in Hungary, you know, I got a phone call. You want to see your dad again? You better come now. And you know what? I tell you, tell you the truth, I don't even know who, who called me. I mean, just hearing that, you know, waking you up in the middle of the night and hearing that, it just hits you. And, you know, I think it might have been my older sister that gave me the phone call. I don't know. Again, I, I don't really know. You know, all I knew is, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Lord, 
what, are, what am I going to do? I mean, we're missionaries, right? We don't have that kind of money to fly our entire family back to the States. You know, it was just, you know, I was so grateful. God, he provided the money for us to return to the States. So grateful for, uh, for the time I had with my dad before he died. I got to spend the last six weeks with my dad caring for him uh, before he died. And there were things that were spoken between us that, you know, to this day, still very precious to me. It was such a blessing for me to tell my dad how much I loved him, how he impacted my life, how I wanted to be a man like him, and uh, to hear him tell me how much he loved me, to hear him tell me how, uh, you know, what he thought of me as a man. It was such a blessing to me. You know, I'm so thankful that the Lord allowed me to be there for my dad before he died. And we didn't know it at the time, but the last day my dad was able to speak, um, October 31st, 2004, my last day, the last day my dad was able to speak, he asked me to pray with him to ask Jesus to come into his heart and forgive him of his sins, you know? And, uh, you know, I got to assure my dad with all the authority of God's word that if he was sincere, God heard that prayer and I would see him in heaven. And you know what? My dad said, I was sincere. And again, that was the last day my dad was able to speak. That was the last day he was conscious. Two, three weeks later, uh, he had passed away. And I'm so thankful for the, the time that God allowed me to spend with my dad, to pray with my dad, you know, to ask Jesus to come into his heart. And, and then after that, you know, I got to do my dad's funeral. One of the highlights of ministry for me, the three biggest e events for me in ministry, do my dad's funeral, doing Tina's dad's funeral, doing my daughter's wedding, being part of that, sharing it with my son-in-law's dad, who's also a pastor. You know, I just want to encourage you. I'm starting here because of this. I want to encourage you. And if you haven't told your parents recently that you love them, call them and let them know. Mama, I love you. My mom's watching. I love you, Mom. But you know what? It's, it's, if there's something between you and your parents that needs to be settled, settle it before it's too late. Settle it before it's too late. One of the biggest regrets in, in people's lives are that they didn't tell their parents. They didn't tell a loved one. They, they loved them before it was too late. They didn't take the opportunity to make peace with their parents or again, to tell those loved ones uh, that they love them, to make peace with them before they passed on. And, and you know what? I just encourage you, don't let that be your story. You know, a story of regret. Maybe your parents, maybe somebody's wronged you. It doesn't matter because Christian love is greater than those wrongs, right? I just want to encourage you tonight, if that's you, settle things with your parents or that loved one and uh, that's distant to you today before it's too late. You know, again, tell them you love them. Tell them how much they mean to you. Don't let another day pass without going to them and weeping with them. Um, you know, Joseph had the opportunity with his dad before he died again, embraced him, you know, loved on him, you know, wept with him a good while, it says. But in verse 30, chapter 46, verse 30, and Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you're still alive again. It's all, um, 
You know, that's enough for me. I, my life is complete now, is basically what he says. And then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they've brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that we may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And that's where we left off last week. We pointed out last week that we see Jesus, uh, Joseph here uh, as a mediator. He's a mediator between his brethren and Pharaoh. Uh, he's the one that makes communication possible between Pharaoh and these Hebrew shepherds from the land of Canaan. And, and all along in our study, we've been pointing out how Jesus is a type of Christ. And here's another uh, one to look at, how Jesus is our mediator. He's the mediator between God and man, between God the Father and sinful man. He's the one that makes communication possible. And then the last phrase of the chapter, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And we want to understand that the Egyptians, they lived in a very, very strict, uh, you know, uh, caste system. To the Egyptians, right, uh, the very lowest of that caste system uh, were shepherds. You know, those people who uh, tended to livestock or oversaw livestock, didn't matter if they were sheep or cattle, they were just the lowest one on that social calendar. And because of this, the shepherds, they happened to be an abomination to the Egyptians. So the shepherd was repulsive to the Egyptians, right? The shepherds were offensive to the Egyptians. And again, what a picture we see here that the shepherds were an offense. They were repulsive to the Egyptians because it's a picture of how Jesus, our good shepherd, the good shepherd, the fulfillment of all shepherds is an abomination to the world that we live in. Right? Just as the shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians, so too Jesus is an abomination to the world in which we live. His life, his teachings, they're repulsive to our Egypt, to the world that we live in. For Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father um, except through me. That's offensive to people. That's narrow-minded. And today, it can be considered hate speech, you know? To talk about hellfire and outer darkness, to talk about weeping and the gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, all of that is offensive to people today. And yet, that's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught about hell more than any other topic, right? He taught on hell more than any other writer in the Bible. We know what we know about hell because of Jesus' teaching on hell, right? And, and you know what? It's very offensive to people in our society, that kind of talk. Jesus said that a person needed to repent or else they would die in their sins. 
Whoa, that message repulses people. They don't like to hear it. Jesus said that people need to be born again before they could even see the kingdom of heaven. You know, again, repentance and being born again, those are ugly, offensive words in our society. It repulses people in our culture. Again, it's all a picture, just as the shepherds were an abomination to that generation in Egypt, so too the good shepherd, our Savior, is a is an abomination. He's an offense to the people in our culture and to the world at large today. And in chapter 47, verse 1, we read, Then Joseph went to and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Why uh, five men? You know what? I don't know. Perhaps, you know, he knew his brothers and he knew that only these five would do well before Pharaoh. Maybe the other ones are, are really social, you know, misfits or something. I don't really know. But he chose five of them and presented them to Pharaoh. And in verse three, then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servant dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh uh, spoke to Joseph saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Goshen was the best of the land of Egypt, right? It's the most fertile land in all of Egypt. Goshen is approximately 900 square miles. Well, if you're anything like me, that information doesn't help you too much. It doesn't help me at all, right? Goshen is about two times the size of the Los Angeles area. I mean, it's huge, right? Pharaoh says to Joseph, Joseph, let your family dwell in the land of Goshen. Let your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Why the best of the land? Did they deserve the best of the land? Why would Pharaoh say that? Had they earned the best of the land in some way? Had they done something to earn it? I mean, these guys were shepherds. They were an abomination to, to the Egyptians. And yet Pharaoh was saying, let them dwell in the best of the land. You know, why the best of the land? It wasn't something that they deserved. It wasn't something that they earned. It was for the sake of another. It was for the sake of Joseph that Pharaoh wanted to bless them with the best. You know, it's just one picture after another of a greater than Joseph, right? It's a picture of how God the Father wants to bless us with the very best. Why? Because you deserve it? Because you made your way to church tonight or you sat on your couch and you logged in to watch the Bible study? You, des you deserve the best because you worshiped him tonight? 
Did you come to the study tonight thinking, you know, God really ought to bless me. You know, I'm telling you, you know, my life is, that I'm living is pretty good. You know, I read the Bible. I sing songs to him. I get along with most people. There are a few that I don't really like, but most people, I mean, I'm doing pretty good. No, none of us deserve God's blessing. I mean, none of us have earned anything other than judgment and condemnation. It's for the sake of another that God the Father wants to bless us with the very best. It's for the sake of his beloved sons, for the sake of Jesus Christ, that he wants to give you and I the best. The Bible tells us that God wants to give you exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask for or think of. That's the God that we serve. You know, just let that sink in. That's the God that we serve, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, if you're in Christ, God wants to lavish blessings upon you. And I love Psalm 68, verse 19. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of salvation, Selah. You know, Selah means meditate on that. Think about that for a little bit. You know, God daily loads us with blessings, right? He wants to bless us. You know, he wants to bless us even more than he's already blessing us. He wants to load, he wants to heap, he wants to lavish blessings upon each one of us for the sake of another, all for the sake of Jesus Christ. And as Pharaoh blessed Jacob and his sons with the very best of the land for the sake of Joseph, again, so too God the Father wants to bless us for the sake of Jesus and verse 7, then Joseph brought in his father and set him before Pharaoh. Now, again, try to picture this scene in your mind if you can. I mean, <clears throat> we don't know how old Pharaoh is, right? But last week we saw how God made Joseph like a father to Pharaoh, Genesis 45, 8. You know, he might have very well have been younger than Joseph. Uh, we don't know. Uh, how old he is. We don't even know which Pharaoh this actually is. There's a lot of speculation as to which Pharaoh this is and where this uh, story fits into Egyptian history. But we do know at this time that Jacob is 130 years old, right? We do know from the New Testament that Jacob is walking with a staff we know that he's walking with a limp, you know, uh, as a result of wrestling, uh, God wrestling with him back in Genesis 32. Here's this, I mean, again, just picture in your mind, just this opulent throne room. And Jacob comes in at this old patriarch that God has chosen to bring the Messiah into the world through his bloodline, right? Here's this old decrepit patriarch coming before Pharaoh, limping, walking with the staff. We read, then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. Again, really try to picture this scene. You have the most 
powerful man in the entire world at the time meeting the patriarch of the most important bloodline at the time, or of all time, the most important bloodline in the history of the world. And notice it says, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, right? Just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Genesis 14, 19, showing his superiority to Abraham, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Well, why do you say superiority, Gary? Well, Hebrews 7, 7 tells us, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better or by the greater. Jacob blesses Pharaoh when he comes into his presence, and we're going to read when he leaves, he's going to bless him a second time. That's in verse 10. Uh, he blesses him the second time. Verse 8, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? It just cracks me up. Here's this old, decrepit guy's got a hip issue. You know, he's limping. He's got a staff. You know, he comes in and he blesses Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, How old are you? It just cracks me up. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. So Jacob's 130 years old here. He says, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and yet they've not attained to the days of the, of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. You know, sounds kind of strange to us today. He's 130 years old. How is it that he can say his days are few? Well, you need to understand that Isaac, Jacob's father, lived to be 180 years old. His grandfather, Abraham, he lived to be 175 years old. His great-grandfather, Terah, lived to be 205 years old. So 130 years in comparison to his forefathers, and in the light of eternity, they seem to be few. When he describes the days of his life as few and evil, the word translated evil there, can probably more clearly be translated um, unpleasant or difficult. Jacob says, my years have been few compared to my forefathers, and they've been hard. They've been difficult. They've been unpleasant. And it wasn't that long ago, if you remember, it wasn't that long ago that Jacob said, all things are against me. Genesis 42, 36, right? Losing Rachel was very hard on Jacob. So close to Bethlehem, right? So close to Bethlehem, and he loses his wife, who was the absolute love of his life. Thinking for 22 years that he lost Joseph, the favorite son from his beloved wife. It's hard on him. The day he sent Benjamin off with the rest of his brothers just about killed him, right? So his life, in his eyes, it's been unpleasant and difficult. Now, he's not complaining or anything like that. He's just recognizing the general character of his life that he's lived in the flesh. You know, I want you to notice how Jacob saw his life. 
Jacob saw his life as a pilgrimage, right? And he speaks of his forefathers living life as a pilgrimage in the same verse also, right? He understood, along with Abraham and Isaac, they understood that this world was not their home, right? They knew their real home was somewhere else. They knew their home was in heaven and they were uh, just passing through this world to get there. You know, if you turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 11, keep your finger here, of course, but turn to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 I hate when your pages stick together. You know what I mean? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw the promises of God out in the distant, out, out ahead of them, right? And they believed in them and they embraced them and they realized this world uh, wasn't their home. And you know, you read about another who had this uh, view. As you go further on in the New Testament, you read about David. He shared this view also. I mean, you, you might go home and read First Chronicles 29, maybe tonight, maybe later this week, and just be blessed by it. David is old in 1 Chronicles 29, and he knows that he's going to die. He realizes that his son Solomon is going to be allowed to build the temple. And David has offered all that he can uh, in order. He's, He's given everything he can give to prepare for the building of the temple. And his heart is completely into making this provision for the temple to be built for the Lord God of Israel. He explains to the people there in 1 Chronicles 29 how that he has given even from his own special treasure, his own silver and gold, and has given it for the building of the house of God. That's where David's heart was. And it's so beautiful. He wanted to be part of God's work here on earth. And so he gave to it. And it talks about how the leaders... Uh, of the nation willingly followed David's example. And it goes on to talk about how David and all the people uh, with all the leaders were worshiping, right? Were rejoicing and they were praising the Lord. And then David blessed as the Lord. And as David blesses the Lord, he talks about how he was an alien, how he was a pilgrim, how this world wasn't his home. He recognized that he was an alien. He recognized that he was a pilgrim. He recognized that he was a sojourner who was not of this world. He was just passing through and he was looking for a life after this life, right? And I'd like to recommend to you um, the diary of David Brainerd. The life and diary of David Brainerd is the, is the, um, the name of the book. David Brainerd, he was a missionary to the American Indians. And his father-in-law was Jonathan Edwards. 
Now, you might have heard of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he preached probably the most famous sermon he preached was called uh, Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God. And you know what? Uh, when people heard Jonathan Edwards preach this, and Jonathan Edwards, he was very nearsighted, right? I mean, he couldn't see very far away. And he would hold his notes literally up to his eyes like this in the pulpit. And he was, he was just very monotone, just, you know, reading from his notes. And as he's preaching this sermon, Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God, people are falling into the aisles, weeping, begging God to forgive them of their sins. Well, anyway, Jonathan Edwards, he edits David Brainerd's diary. So many great men of God refer back to David Brainerd's diary as the work that most impacted their life, of course, next to the Bible. And uh, that's what Jonathan Edwards also said. And in front of David Brainerd's The Life and and um, what was the title again? The Life and Ministry, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, right? In the front, uh, Jonathan Edwards kind of writes this preface, and he includes his 70 resolves, right? If you've never read them, you should. They're so powerful. I have a copy for you tonight if you'd like to get a hold of them and take them home, read them. Um, if you're interested, I'd be happy to make that available to you. Some of them are very dated, but most of them are so wonderful, and we would do well if we would incorporate them into our lives. Well, anyway, Jonathan Edwards, he didn't say that his resolves were good ideas. He resolved, one, to read the 70 resolves once a week, right? He resolved to live his life according to these 70 resolves. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I can, I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. In other words, he said, I resolve to live my life in this world, right? With all that's within me, with all my strength, with all my mind, with all my heart, with all my soul, right? And, and you know, I can't honestly convey uh, the passion that Jonathan Edwards had in these resolves. But Jonathan Edwards, he was stirred to live his life for the Lord and for eternity. That was his goal, right? He wasn't satisfied to live life for this life, but to live for the life to come. And you know what? That needs to be our perspective too. We need to have eternity in our sights. And I pray the Lord uh, would work in my heart in even a greater way. And I pray that we would live as a church, Calvary Chapel, Truckee, that we would live our lives as pilgrims here, right? Putting, not putting down roots, not living for the things of this world. Psalm 84, 5 says, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. 
right? The man or woman who sees their life here on earth as a pilgrimage, right? The Word of God says that they will be blessed, right? The one who realizes that this world is not your home, that you're just passing through it, that person will be blessed. That's the promise. The psalm goes on to say, 84 verse 7, they go from strength to strength. And that's what is going on here tonight, right? God is strengthening us to run the race, right? Setting our hearts on pilgrimage, I hope. And we're being strengthened by God, going from strength to strength, it says. That's the life of a pilgrim. Beaten up, weary, exhausted. Well, Gary, you had me right up until those words. I don't know. No, you know what? God strengthens us as we go. You know, as Christians, that's what we face. We face trials and tribulations, but God strengthens us as we go. The writer of my favorite psalm, I can't wait to teach this psalm here. One Sunday morning, we're going to teach it. My favorite psalm, Psalm 119. But in verse 54, he talks about how God's word and his statutes have been his song and the house of his pilgrimage. That's what the psalmist says, right? This world is not our home. We are just passing through it, and we need to be fixing our eyes on heaven and eternity. We need to allow God's word to become our song and to carry us through those difficult seasons that we go through. Peter said, 1 Peter 1.17 he says, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay. New King James translates stay, sojourning. That's, that's the word that we're kind of looking at, right? He says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear. Right? He says to keep yourself in the fear of God and realizing that you're just passing through. You know what? This world, this world is temporal. Peter says it again in 1 Peter 2.11. It's the theme of Peter's writing. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when you speak against, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, uh, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Paul says, Philippians 3.20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our home is. Our home is in heaven. Paul said, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, if then you were raised with Christ. If you're a believer today, you were crucified with Christ. Galatians 3, 20, and you've been raised with him. Romans 8, 11. Paul says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things of this earth, right? Our eyes need to be fixed on heaven, right? Eagerly waiting 
and looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Understanding that we're not to fix our eyes on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Man, Jesus taught us to be looking towards heaven, to be looking towards eternity when he said this, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust uh, destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Right? Then he said something so important to understand. After that, the very next verse, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure, right, is here on the earth, well, that's where your heart's going to be, right? That's where your desires are going to be. That's where your concerns are going to be. But if your treasures are in heaven, you're looking towards heaven, and you're living for heaven, that's where your heart, that's where your hope, that's where your desire is going to be. And that's a theme throughout the Bible, right? It's stirred many great men on to live with reckless abandon for Jesus Christ, not counting their lives dear to them. I think of Jim Elliott, right? He was stirred by this theme. And after he was martyred and they found his uh, diary being martyred for the faith, they, they found his diary, one of the entries that he's penned that's become so well known. I mean, all of us probably could quote it. A man is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, you're not a fool to give up the things of this world, which you uh, cannot keep to gain the things of heaven, to gain eternal treasures. It's so foolish for us to become occupied and preoccupied by the things of this world. And I confess to you tonight, I confess, you know what? I spend far too much time occupied with the things of this world because you know what they just actually they actually don't matter and so i encourage you i ask you please pray for me as i pray for you let's pray that our focus would be on the things that will last for eternity you know what that we would be living for tomorrow today that our eyes would be set on the things of heaven that we would live as pilgrims and sojourners in this world Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived their lives as pilgrims looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, it says in Hebrews. Well, verse 10, back in Genesis 47, verse 10, so Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's the second time Jacob blesses Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Verse 11, then Joseph situated his father and his brothers, and it just means that he situated them in the land of Goshen and gave them a, a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, and as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided uh, his father, his brothers, and all in his household with bread, according to the number of their families. And at this point, I probably don't need to be pointing out to you all the different uh, types of Christ that we see. But again, here's another one. Joseph, here's a type of picture of Christ. Joseph provides the bread of life for his family, right? Even as Jesus provides the bread that comes down from heaven, that gives life to all who partake of it. Jesus, 
He is the bread of life. In verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give, your, uh, give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And that year, when that year had ended, verse 18, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide it from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land. Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. And that's exactly what Joseph does, right? He's going to buy them. He's going to buy the land. Does that sound familiar at all? Does it remind you of anything? You know, Joseph purchased them and their land. Again, it's such a powerful and clear picture of Jesus, our Savior. It happens to be exactly what Jesus did, right? He purchased us. He bought us. He bought this world. Remember the parable in Matthew where Jesus said that the kingdom was like a treasure that was hidden in the field? And the man who found the treasure in the field, he hid it. And then he went out for the joy of that treasure. He went out and sold all that he had so he could buy that field, right? It wasn't the field that that man was after. He was after the treasure that was in the field. That's what he wanted. And again, it's a parable that Jesus uh, spoke. And it's a parable about him, right? We're told in the parable that the field represents the world. And Jesus gave everything that he uh, had. He gave everything, put it that way. He gave everything that he might buy the world, not for the sake of owning another world. He owns all the worlds and all the universe, right? He gave all. He laid down his life to redeem the world, to buy the world that he might gain the treasure. And the treasure, of course, you know what? It's us. It's you and I. I love it. He gave all that he might redeem us, the treasure in the world. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your sight, uh, in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Peter 1.18-19 tells us that we were redeemed. We were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you are no longer your own. You belong to God. He paid for you. He bought you. He purchased you. And we see 
we see this beautiful picture of redemption here. You know, God has made you and he has purchased you. You belong to him. You know what? We need to keep this in our mind at all times. Verse 20, then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had uh, rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. And it might have been that Joseph wanted to buy the land of the priests, but because of uh, Pharaoh's direct intervention, he was unable to. I mean, these are the same priests. We're going to read about not too terribly long when we get to Exodus, but these are the same, yeah, probably not the same priest, but the same people that actually stood against Moses. And uh, verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, I indeed have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you and you shall sow the land and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one fifth to Pharaoh. Uh, four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So Joseph required 20% of their increase. And notice their response in verse 25. They said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in your sight, in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priest only, which did not become Pharaoh's. Man, it's just so interesting to me, their response, right? Joseph had saved their lives, and he required 20% from them. And they said, you've saved our lives. Right? Oh, that we might find favor in your sight. We're Pharaoh's servants. You saved us. Right? As we look at this, we're to realize that this should be our response as believers. Right? Giving of our increase to one greater than Joseph. We're to be giving to the Lord. Look, Lord, you saved me. You've saved us. You know, Lord, that I might find favor in your sight. Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. You know, it's so clear to me in Scripture, the tithe belongs to the Lord. That's what Leviticus 20, verse 7 says. It says that the, the tithe belongs to the Lord, and it is holy to the Lord. Tithing is taught in the, in the, the law, in the book of Genesis. It's taught throughout the law. And Jesus taught it in Matthew 23, 23, where the Pharisees were tithing their mint and their anise and their cumin. And Jesus rebuked them for not giving a place to justice and mercy and righteousness. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, these you ought or must do, speaking of tithing, right? He said, you ought or must do it, but you shouldn't leave the other things undone. 
right? The justice, the mercy, the righteousness. You, you should do those things also. And I'm convinced to the best of my ability as uh, studying the word of God, I'm convinced that God's people, we should be tithing. A tithe just means a tenth. Joseph required 20% and the people were happy to give it. As Christians, the scriptures make it clear we're to give a tithe, 10%. Not because God needs our money, but because he knows that there's something in each one of us, something about us that we need to be giving. Every time we're obedient to him in giving, we give a little bit more of our selfishness away. You know what? I'm committed to tithing. Tina and I, you know, we've received blessing after blessing after blessing that God has promised us, right? As a result of tithing, I believe. The tithe is 10%. It's to come into the church for the work of the church, work of the ministry, to provide for the different ministries, right? To pay the electricity, to heat the place that we gather together, to pay the rent, so on. If a person wants to give to a missionary, that's great, Right? But the Bible uh, teaches that that would be considered a free will offering. That's not a tithe. You know, it's a blessing to give over and above the tithe, right? To, pay, to play a role in bringing the gospel to the lost through missionary endeavors, right? Missionaries that we support, support, but not until the tithe comes into the storehouse, into that place where you're fed, the Bible says. You see tithing clearly throughout the Bible. And honestly... In my mind, it is the easiest way to share in the fruit that is born from this ministry and the others that we support, expanding the kingdom of God, right? Spreading the gospel to the lost throughout this world, right? People often argue, you know, teaching the tithe, it's placing people under the law, Gary. No, it's not true. The first two times you see tithing in the, in the Old Testament, is in Genesis, chapter 14, uh, chapter 28, and all before the law. And in each case, right, the tithe was given in a response to what Jacob, uh, sorry, what God had done. Uh, Genesis 14, Abraham tithing. Genesis 28, Jacob tithing. And again, Jesus taught the tithe, and it was practiced in the early church. We're to tithe if only out of a response of his salvation. Lord, you've saved us. Lord, you've saved us from hell. Oh, that we might find favor in your sight. We're your servants. In Malachi, God challenges us to test him in regards to tithes and offerings. You know, God says, Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try or test me on this now. Say, uh, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will, be not, uh, there will not be uh, room enough to receive it. Right? It's the only place in the Bible that God says, hey, test me on this. Prove me on this. See if what I'm telling you is not true. You know what? I'll prove myself to you. Right? Personally, you know what? I think there's a lot more room in my life where I could receive blessing. I've yet to see the windows of heaven open up. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. We're, we're blessed. Tina and I are so blessed. You know, but 
I think there's still a little bit more room. God, pour it out, pour it out, pour it out. You know, we have so much to learn as God's people in this area. Well, moving on, we see that Joseph required 20%, and their response in verse 25 was, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Verse 26, and Joseph made a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, 20%, except for the land of the priest only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they had uh, possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. I just love where the Bible just understates things. I mean, this is a tremendous understatement. If you go back a chapter, you see that there's 70 people that go down into Egypt. 70 people. And we're going to read in Exodus. In fact, Exodus chapter 12, when we get there, we're going to read they leave Egypt with 600,000 men. And when you... Uh, factor in all the women, the wives, the children. You know what? Uh, that makes a minimum of 2 million people, right? So I'd agree. They multiplied exceedingly in the land of Goshen. Verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Jacob's life was difficult for many, many years. But the last 17 years of his life, God had been faithful to him. He, he made it through the difficult years, and now God has given him 17 wonderful, blessed years with Joseph. He provided for him in the best of the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he, Joseph, he said, I will do as you have said. You know, we've mentioned this a few chapters back, right? It sounds you know, kind of like a little strange thing. This is kind of a little weird, man, putting your, hot, your hand under my thigh, you know? Uh, and we remember Genesis 24, Abraham did that with his servant Eleazar, right? Made him swear that he wouldn't take a wife for his son Isaac uh, from among the Canaanites. And Eleazar put his hand under his thigh. You know, this was way back in the day. That's how they made an oath. That's how they made a covenant. And actually, as weird as you may think it might be, I, I think it's a little better than cross my heart, hope to die, stick a hundred needles in my eye. I mean... <laughs> I'd rather put my hand under somebody's thigh than someone stick a needle in my eye. So anyway, I'm not sure that I really like it. But anyway, verse 31. Then he said, swear to me. And he, Joseph, swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And we're going to see in coming chapters that Joseph did just as he promised. You know, and that also is a picture of Jesus Christ, Right? And we'll point that out when we get to it. You know what? If you're here today, you're watching online, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved today. You can enjoy the blessings of God and be found in heaven with him when you pass from this life into the next one. All you have to do is ask. 
And Jesus will respond. That's what the Bible says. He'll cleanse you. He'll wash you uh, from the stain of sin. He'll give you new life. And you know what? Don't allow the enemies. I was just praying through, preparing for this Bible study. Just, we were talking about this just the other day, some of the guys and I. You know, don't allow the enemy to lie to you and say, you know what, you got plenty of time, man. Just, you know what, relax. You know, you got plenty of time. There's years ahead of you. If you want to be a Christian later in life, you know, knock yourself out. But right now, you know, eat, drink, be married, party, man, experience life. No, no, the problem with that is it doesn't work. Every time you hear the invitation to the gospel, and every time you say no to it, what happens is your heart gets a little bit more callous. And you know, year after year after year of saying no to the Lord, your heart can get so hard. You know what? Even if you wanted to give your life to Christ, you wouldn't do it because your heart's so hard, it would be impossible to say yes. You know, the Bible says that Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And I just encourage you, would you pray? If you're listening to my voice and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what? No magic prayer, no magic words, no magic formula. It's just praying from your heart. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I've done wrong. Would you come into my life? Make me whole. I believe Christ died on the cross for me. I believe he was buried. And the third day he was resurrected. Lord, would you, would you just make me a new creation? Give me the power to live my life for you. Lord, I give it to you now. You've saved me. Oh, that I'd find favor in your sight, Lord. I'm your servant. Do with me as you please. You know, if you'll pray that prayer, God will meet you and save you. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just thankful for your word. Thankful for just how wonderful your word is, how clear it is, how beautiful it is to hear, Lord, of your love, of your grace, how you want to bless us with the very best. Lord, how you want to work in us and, and draw us to yourself that we might know you in greater ways. Lord, I just pray, let your word wash over us tonight and let it accomplish the eternal purposes in our hearts tonight that you sent it forth for. Lord, we give you praise and glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.